it's good to see everybody. Um, I apologize. I'm a little bit hoarse this morning. I've been yelling at kids all week, and that's closer to the truth than I would like it to be, but (laughs) I'm coaching up in the DFW area, high schoolers and middle schoolers, so it's a little bit taxing on the vocal cords. Um, But we are here, and I think the Lord has something special for us this morning, so we're going to dive into His Word and see what that may be. Uh, This morning, we will be picking up back in Colossians. Yeah, uh, last time we did hit on verse 18 very briefly, so I'm going to back up and run over verse 18 again, and then we'll continue through chapter 1 of Colossians. So Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we see here, Christ is called the head of the body. And the body is the church. Okay, this is not something new in scripture. We see this all throughout, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians 12 27, in Ephesians 4 12, and Hebrews 3 13, just to name a few. Uh, but if we think about it, all parts of a body serve a purpose, right? And you've heard that the eye can't do the ear's job and the ear can't do the hand's job. And that's true. We can't do each other's jobs. Um, But even more than that, you have a very vital organ like the heart. As vital as that is, it can't do the job of the small intestines of absorbing nutrients and passing along the waste. See, that's a dirty job. And the small intestines got to do that job. The heart can't do it. Okay, but it takes the dirty job to make everything else move. Okay, that was, a, that was a joke. Thank you. Okay. So someone has to do the, jer- the dirty work, and I, that's just how it is, right? So not everyone can be doing each other's jobs. We're gifted with different things, right, uh, directly from the Holy Spirit. And I do want to read us through 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven, 27 uh, and a little bit past that. It says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So we're talking about the church here. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So here, Paul is saying, we don't have the same gifts. We all got to pull our weight with what we've been given. We're stewards of the gifts that we've been given. And we do need to use that in the church, and it all works together as a body does. 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So here we see Christ placed at the head of the church, okay? Without the head, the body is useless because the head uh, is what thinks. It's what tells the rest of the body what to do via the brain and the nerves. Um, We know that. So without the head, we have nothing. Uh, We shouldn't be looking to other parts of the body 
to lead it. You shouldn't be looking to the feet to lead you where you're supposed to go because they don't do the thinking. Okay, it's the head that does the thinking. Christ is leading us as a church. It's the feet that carry us along, right? So we need to not submit in that same way that we do to Christ to man. Okay, the pastor doesn't lead. The Pope doesn't lead. Elders don't lead. Christ leads the church, and Christ is the head of the church. And there's no authority resting in any man that equals that of Christ. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence? Now, during Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that he raised people from the dead before he raised himself from the dead, okay? So we're not talking about just being raised from the dead once, okay? See, those three people, there was Jairus' daughter, uh, there was a widow's son, and Lazarus were all raised before Jesus was raised from the dead, okay? So we're not talking about that resurrection here. We're talking about the eternal resurrection. See, those three other people, died again. They didn't conquer death. They were dead and then risen, but Jesus died, rose, and is still alive. We serve a living God this morning. Okay. It's not Buddha, who was a human, who has since passed away. Uh, It's not some other dead God. We serve a living God. And he lives with us and in us. And that's extremely exciting. So by Jesus, death was conquered. So in that sense, he is the preeminent one. He conquered death so that the rest of humanity could have life. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. The firstborn from the dead. That's That from right there is ek or ex. Okay, ex is just the firm that's, the form of ek that is used before a vowel. So it's like our a and an. So depending on where you look, if you're checking me, you may see either ek or x. Uh, That just means out from among, okay? And the weast does a great job at translating this. Uh, It says the firstborn out from among the dead, okay? So that's permanent, just like we were talking about. It's not Jesus rose and then he died again. Jesus has risen and is still alive. So verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, we see in him all the fullness should dwell, but what does all the fullness mean? Well, we know that the Bible is the best commentary on itself. And in this case, it's really easy. We just go down a few verses. Okay, so in chapter 2, in verse 9, Paul says, now we're still in Colossians. He says, for in him, talking about Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, so that tells us that even back here in chapter 1, we are talking about the fullness of the Godhead, what we would call today the Trinity, that state of being the state of God. Um, 
And uh, that's really what it means is the state of being God, theotes. Um, so that's what we're talking about in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. Okay. Now, in our humanity, we look around for examples or pictures of this triune Godhead. Okay. And Romans tells us that we can see some of that in nature, right? So we see that the time, time, space, and matter slash energy, they're really the same thing, but we won't go into that a whole lot. But you see the time, space, and matter. You have to have all three of them together to have one of them. You cannot have matter that is not bound by space and time. You can't have space without time and without something occupying that space. Okay? So in that sense, it is a type of a, a triune thing. Creation as a whole reflects the Godhead nature. But it's not a perfect picture. Okay? And that's important. Of course, nothing in the creation is the same as the Creator. Okay, there's an infinite gap between them. So don't think that I'm telling you that nature is God because that's false, okay? That's pantheism. Um, nature is not God, but God has revealed parts of himself in nature for us to look at. And I mean, I like occupying my time looking in nature for God. I think that's thrilling. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but it's, it's all right. Um, so even, even beyond, uh, that picture, the ultimate picture of the triune nature of God is in Jesus Christ. And in, uh, the first chapter of Mark, uh, verses nine through 11 specifically, we get this picture of all three persons of the Trinity working together in unity. Okay. So let's look at Mark one, nine through 11 it says it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending up upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there Jesus, the son is being baptized. It's a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's, a, it's also an example for us to follow as believers. Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending on him like a dove. We're not told that it was a dove that landed on Jesus, but the Holy Spirit descended on them him like a dove. And then the Father is saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So we have these three persons of the Trinity all working together to accomplish this task on earth. I think that's a really cool picture there just in the beginning of Mark. So that is basically what Jesus is embodying on earth. He is flesh. He is also spirit and soul. He is all of what God is displayed to us on earth. Remember, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. I think it was last week 
We talked about Jesus being the icon of God, the impress of God's face on the world, like the baby's hand in plaster. Jesus is literally the impress of God into our earthly existence. That's pretty cool. Verse 20, continuing that thought, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So this is all one sentence, 19 and 20. Uh, a little bit wordy, and he, he pulls in by him quite a bit, uh, just to make sure you got it. But basically, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Time is pointed in one direction. It's, it's a vector, okay? Everything is headed somewhere. We can't be headed nowhere. And we're headed back to Christ. From him, everything was created. By him, everything is sustained. And to him, everything is going, okay? So again, we see that before, right now, and then um, in the future. So Jesus is everything to us. We wouldn't be here without him. He created us. We certainly wouldn't be spending eternity with him if it wasn't for what he's done. And looking forward to that eternity is giving us hope right now. It is me. I look forward to what the Bible tells me is to come. And that's a great assurance that we have. And we'll look at hope again a little bit later in this study. It says, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross, way back in the Garden of Eden, humans transgressed the law of God. We broke it, and we broke that close communion that we had with him. Um, it is only by his blood that that is being made whole again. We're, we can come back to God now um, as sons of his. So, that's also exciting. And it gets rid of the priesthood. It gets rid of any intermediaries between us and God. And we have that line of communication. We're reconciled. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So from the onset of sin, we were separated from the holiness of God. And currently, we see all of creation groaning with the birth pangs. It's the, they've been, the, all of creation has been subjected to this futility, not willingly, but in hope in hope for the things that are to come. See, if we weren't subjected to futility, we'd have to go on living like this. That's not hope. If everything stays the way it is right now, I'll pass. I mean, that's just, that's my opinion. Maybe, maybe yours is different, but I don't want to live forever like this. I'm looking forward to when creation 
comes to that point where everything is reconciled back to Christ. I'm looking forward to that. Um, scientifically, you would say that it's the law of entropy. And entropy is just a fancy word for saying like disorder, chaos. Okay, Everything's rolling downhill. Uh, creation was created perfect. There was no transgression. There was no sin. Uh, and God was in full communion with man. Then when sin entered the world, so did this entropy, this chaos. Things started breaking apart. Okay? And we see it. It's in our laws of thermodynamics. Okay, Everything's running downhill. Energy is becoming more and more unavailable. No, no energetic process is 100% efficient. There's always some loss of potential energy. And at some point, scientists tell us, the earth will experience what is called the ultimate heat death. Okay, And it's not a burning up like we would think of heat. We're talking about energy here. So at some point, this process that is not 100% efficient will lose all energy. So there will be no more available energy to use. Now, this is coming from the scientists, remember. Before that point comes, Christ will return. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. And uh, having made pl- peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, pay attention to this verse 23. Okay, we just read 21 and 22. That sounds nice. It sounds really good to us. 23 is going to qualify that. Okay, so not everyone is going to be reconciled. Okay, it is God's will that everyone be reconciled, but not everyone is going to take that offer that he's extended. So look, in 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you continue in the faith, are grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. It's that same gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a different gospel. Okay, It's the same gospel which you have heard. If you continue in that, then, verses 21 and 22, you will be reconciled and in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. It's Jesus that all of that is possible. Through Jesus, that verse 21 and 22 is possible. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, you all are used to being taught the Bible. You probably already know that in verse 24, Paul is not talking about a propitiatory suffering. He's not talking about his suffering 
filling up what was lacking in the propitiatory suffering of Christ. Okay. On the cross, it was finished. The suffering that Christ endured on the cross is what it takes for salvation. Okay. Nothing more and nothing less. That's not what Paul is talking about. But if we remember just a second ago, we were talking about the church as a body. Okay. Everyone is together in this, really. Uh, We're all working together, pushing towards this prize. Now, what he's saying is that people today who are offended at Jesus are offended at him through you, the church. Okay? So the suffering placed on us as Christians, as members of this body, are really pointed at Christ. But Christ isn't on the earth anymore, so they can't be directed at him, so they're directed at us. That's the suffering that we're talking about, okay? Anyone that persecutes you is someone who would have persecuted Jesus while he was on the earth. And since Christ is in you, and we'll see in just a second, that's the hope of glory. Christ is in you. Um, Because of that, these are sufferings for his sake. And Paul would have been keenly aware of the fact that Christians were the body of Christ and they represented Christ on the earth. Remember back in Acts 9 when uh, it tells us of the conversion of Saul to Paul. So Saul, one of the, one of, if not the, most feared persecutor of the church in those early days of the church. He was chosen by God to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world, okay? When Saul was blinded on the road to Damascus, look at what God says to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? That's what he was doing. He was holding Christians at the point of a sword, forcing them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, hauling them off to prison. In fact, he was on the way to Damascus to haul more Christians off. And he had a letter that said he could do it. So he was intent on doing that. God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So in writing this letter to the Colossians, uh, the church in Colossae, Paul would have been aware of those persecutions against the church being directly tied to God, to Jesus. Those persecutions are against Jesus. They're not against us. So Paul is willing to take on those sufferings for the sake of the body of Christ. Does that make sense? So verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, again, we have this evil, evil man, and he is chosen by God, uh, not by man. And he mentions that briefly in the start of one of his epistles. I can't remember which one, Uh, but he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
uh, and not by man, but by God. God directly chose Saul, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. That's the stewardship from God. He's been entrusted with carrying this message to the rest of the Gentile world. Verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now, the Bible is an epic. It's a story of God's unfolding revelation. Okay, he's chosen to reveal himself in certain ways throughout time. And it wasn't until Jesus came that he revealed who the Messiah would be, how he would keep all of these promises that he made to Israel. We read in Exodus this morning, we read that he is loving, he is just, he is all of these things. He's full of grace. Well, when he was telling that to Moses, Moses didn't know how that would work out. God hadn't revealed that to him yet. But now, I sense some excitement in Paul here. He's excited that he gets to see the fulfillment of God's promise. Okay? So he would have been very aware. And I mean, this guy, you couldn't keep him in books. He was going through them so fast. Um, at that, the school for the Jews uh, there in Tarsus, and he was just rolling through these Jewish books, and he was gaining all of this knowledge. Uh, he was at the top of his class. He was the guy. If you needed to know about the law, Saul is your guy. Um, but he was chosen out of everyone else, the zeal that he had, and we looked at, we looked at that uh, earlier as well, the zeal that Paul had for the law was immeasurable. Uh, it was incomparable to any other person, to any other Jew. And in the mind of the Jew, there was never a thought that the rest of the world, the Gentiles, who they called dogs, there was no thought that they would get to share in this inheritance. And I can't blame them. I mean, if you look through the Old Testament, it's very pointed at the Jews, at the Israelites and their nation. Uh, so the fact that God grafts us Gentiles into this good news, into this gospel, is wonderful. And that's something that we can celebrate because, I mean, that speaks to his loving nature um, and that he does not want anyone to perish. Verse 27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now we're talking about to the Gentiles still. God wanted to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That is the glory of this mystery, Christ in you. And that's something that we all can celebrate, the hope of glory. Now, look at this hope right here, okay? It says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This hope is not speaking of, oh, I hope that that works out. I hope that Jesus keeps his promises. 
that we are transformed into his likeness like he says we will. I hope, fingers crossed, that's not what it's talking about. Okay, the Christian hope is a different type of hope from every other hope in the world. Okay, we are expecting this. This is an expectation, earnest expectation of things to come. And literally, this word hope speaks of an expectation and a confidence in that expectation. And that's what we have through Christ in us. The hope of glory. 28, him we preach. Not something else, not some alternative gospel, not some financial gospel, nothing like that. It's him. It's Jesus Christ that we preach. Not only that, but warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Have you ever been warned about something? I hope you have. You probably have because you're still here. Your parents probably warned you about something. I do my best to heed those warnings of other people because I know there's a lot of people that know more than I do. And if I can save myself a little bit of harm because I'm listening to somebody, I'm good with that. There are some people, though, you'll see that do not like to be warned. They do not like to hear corrections. But how absurd is that? If you're going down the highway, you're in the left lane, you see a sign says, it's warning you, hey, the left lane's going to be closed in about a quarter mile. Like, you better get over. If you're like, nah, it'll be fine. What do you get? It's a wreck. At the very best, you make it out with a couple thousand dollars in repairs that you got to do just from hitting a cone. At the very worst, you get killed because you didn't heed this warning. So Paul is warning every man. Now, the thing that Paul was warning about is much more deadly, much more dire than a lane closed. He was warning of the state of depravity that we are in. As an unsaved man or woman, we are separated from God. And that is just the nature of us. And Paul is warning every man. Again, it is God's will that every man should be saved. Um, Yes, we have the elect. If you want to accept the good news of Jesus Christ, congratulations, you're the elect. If you don't, and you say, well, that's not fair, this whole predestination, this election and predestination, that's not fair. Okay, then accept it, and you're the elect, right? That's how it works. Um, So Paul is warning every man, and not only warning, it's important to warn people, and sometimes that that helps them get over whatever's holding them back from accepting Christ. But after that happens, we need to teach them. We need to have them in the word. We need to teach every man. So warning is important. Teaching is also important. Remember, you can't have a 50-year-old man over there drinking a bottle of baby milk or something. Okay, we got to grow with these things. And we do that by teaching, by learning, by reading the word. Teaching every man in all wisdom 
that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. Look at that, every man. And this, every man coming to Jesus Christ, being presented as blameless, to this end, I, meaning Paul, also labor. That's why he's doing all of this. That's why he's been locked up in prison so many times. That's why he's been shipwrecked. That's why he continues to do what he did. He was killed outside a city one time, ran back in the city to continue preaching the gospel. That's wild. And he did that so that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. To this end, I also labor. Let's look at that labor right there. Um, the definition I got from the NKGV, NKJV Strong's is to labor with wearisome effort, to toil. Okay, so this is a toil. It's a difficult thing. As Christians, we're not called to an easy life. We're not called to riches, not all of us at least. Some of us may be blessed with riches, um, but we're not promised that. And Paul here has had a rough life, and he knows all about the toil. You ask him about toil, he, will, he can tell you a bunch. <laughs> He's been through it all. So to this end, he also toils or labors, striving. This striving right here can mean a couple of different things, and I think they're all helpful to us understanding uh, this idea that Paul's talking about. The first is competing for a prize. And that's in the sense of like an Olympian strives for a medal. They're striving. They're working hard. It's hard work. Uh, I like to follow some of the Olympians on social media and stuff. And sometimes they'll post pictures of their or pictures or videos of their training. And it's not easy. I mean, if you know... Uh, Maddie Rogers, she's an Olympic weightlifter, uh, the sport that I enjoy, and she trains with more weight than I can lift as a one rep max. Like these guys are and gals are serious; they're striving for this. Okay. The second way that we can understand this strive is to contend with adversaries, to fight. Okay, so we are in a battle; it's a spiritual battle. And we are opposed to the ruler of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and all of his little minions. Um, We are opposed to them, and they will attack us. And we are striving to overcome their attacks and to present every man as faultless before Christ. The third definition that we can understand this striving with is simply to endeavor with a strenuous zeal to obtain something. And I think that is truly the definition that fits best with this word. Um, Although I like the other two as well. Um, But Paul is endeavoring with strenuous zeal to obtain something. That something is that every man may be presented perfect in Jesus Christ. So that is striving. We're all striving together to get this accomplished, okay? And before we go, let's take as many as we can with us, okay? We are 
representing Christ on the earth. We are his body that is alive and well on the earth. Before we go, let's do something about that. Okay? Let's use those gifts that we've all been given uh, and let's make good on them. Because we're only entrusted this one life. It is appointed once for a man to live and then he dies. We're given these things as a stewardship. So God doesn't have to make you good at anything. He doesn't have to make me good at anything. He hasn't made me good at much, but I'll take what I can get. But I want to use what I am good at to serve him, to serve him well while I'm here. Let's all go to the Lord in prayer.